Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's Case Notes podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to delve into the different physician branches or specialties. Just to start off with, what is a physician? Most people know what a GP is and what a surgeon is, but not everyone knows exactly what a physician does. Well, the formal description is specialists in internal medicine, so diseases and complaints that happen inside your body. And even if that sounds unfamiliar, you've almost certainly heard of a lot of the areas that this covers, like cardiology, diabetes, allergies, palliative care, infectious disease, and neurology. These are all branches of medicine or specialties that physicians are responsible for. In each coming episode of Case Notes, we will pick one of these specialties and delve into its history, looking at its development over hundreds of years and some of the interesting stories and cases from the past. We'll also talk to a current physician working in that area to find out what it is like to be working as a specialist physician in the 21st century. In this episode of Case Notes, we're looking at the past and present of psychiatry. We'll be talking in a bit to Professor Soraya Sedat, but we're going to start by delving into the history of psychiatry. Mental illness has been documented throughout human history. While the symptoms have varied, it has often been identified by behaviour seen as abnormal or somehow socially unacceptable. In ancient Greece, insanity was often considered to be either a punishment by the gods or the sign of a divine message. In the Middle Ages, After the Black Death swept across Europe, killing nearly 50% of the population, ideas around mental illness began to take a more sinister form. Such conditions were increasingly believed to be the result of supernatural forces and malicious demons. Later, during the Renaissance, the focus was placed on diabolical possession, particularly witchcraft. Given this attitude, how else could these diseases be explained if not by witches under the power of the devil? Women were condemned as witches far more than men. Whether they were providing medicine for the sick or acting in a manner considered hysterical, women's behaviour could be seen as abnormal or threatening social norms. Early medical treatments were often more dangerous than the conditions they were supposed to treat. In the case of mental health, many sufferers were dealt with more like prisoners than patients, the goal being containment, not cure. With a lack of specialist institutions, the mentally ill were often housed in workhouses, religious establishments, and even actual prisons. As physicians became more involved in the treatment of those deemed insane, the responsibility for their care began to be taken away from communities, folk healers, and religious figures. This, however, did not always mean an improvement in the standards of care. In some asylums, beating and intimidation of the mentally ill was common, fear and pain being viewed as effective methods of treatment. Even more invasive were some of the recommended surgical procedures. Trepanation, the drilling of holes through the skull, was used as a treatment for mental illness for thousands of years. Patients were also encouraged to eat tobacco and rhubarb to induce vomiting. When such drastic measures failed, opium, laudanum and other drugs were always available to sedate and calm the patient. 
In the 1800s, urbanization removed people from traditional support networks, making it harder for them to care for the sick or the aged. As a result, asylums were increasingly used to house the mentally ill, rather than treatment being provided in their own community. The ineffective nature of the treatments which were attempted meant longer stays for the chronically mentally ill. Extending the length of time patients were housed in asylums contributed to overcrowding and lowering standards of care. Attempts to solve these problems led to legislation, such as the County Asylums Act 1808 in England and Wales and the Lunacy Act 1857 in Scotland. While earlier asylums had often been run by non-medical staff, the asylums which were founded in the 1800s attempted to establish their authority by employing medical practitioners. This started a move from containment to treatment, which led to the emergence of novel therapies, greater understanding of patient needs, and the new field of psychiatry. One such asylum, established in the 1800s, was the Royal Edinburgh Hospital. In Edinburgh in the 1700s, people with mental illnesses were often cared for at home. While wealthy individuals could afford private asylums, the only option for the poor and middle classes were the cells within the city's charity workhouse. These housed people in notoriously poor conditions. The first appeal to raise public funds for a specific mental health facility in the city was launched in 1792 by Andrew Duncan, president of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. The foundation stone was laid in 1809 and the Edinburgh Asylum opened to fee-paying patients four years later. During the 1840s it was granted a royal charter and poor patients began to be admitted and transferred from the city's workhouse. The treatment approach was the relatively new concept of moral therapy. Patients followed regular routines with substantial meals and early bedtimes. Physical and mental stimulation were encouraged through work, recreation and physical exercise. The asylum was renamed the Royal Edinburgh Hospital for Mental and Nervous Disorders in 1922 and continues to provide acute psychiatric and mental health services to this day. So we're focusing now on psychiatry in the modern day and we have here with us Professor Sedat. So could we just start off with you introducing yourself, just saying who you are and a little bit about where you work? Thank you very much. I'm a psychiatrist by training. I've been a clinical researcher for just over 24 years and I chair a department of psychiatry at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. Thank you. So just to start from the beginning with the absolute basics, how would you define what psychiatry is? Psychiatry is a medical discipline that is primarily concerned with the diagnosis, treatment, rehabilitation and prevention of mental illness or mental disorders. Um, and psychiatrists work holistically in understanding the uh, contributory factors that give rise to mental illness in individuals and trying to uh, get um, individual patients who present for treatment um, to a state of better well-being. Um, and I think it is important to think about um, psychiatry as being that discipline that is really concerned with uh, holistic health uh, because mental health um, has both intrinsic as well as um, instrumental value. Um, so when we think about mental health, it is not just about um, individual well-being, it's about collective and societal well-being. So I have a bit of a horrible question now, which is you've already touched on, you know, the breadth of, of what your work entails. So can you, you know, in a very simple nutshell, talk us through a day in the life of your work and what you do? 
or is that actually an impossible question because your work is just so varied? My work is varied, uh, but I can I can highlight um, some of the activities that um, may consume uh, some of my work week. Um, so I have. Um, as I indicated right at the outset, being a clinical researcher. And so my focus is on clinical research, primarily on patient populations, uh, but patient populations who are recruited um, for um, various research projects. Um, and within my research, I have um, postgraduate students and staff that I oversee and, and mentor and um, provide support to. Um, I also um, train and teach uh, postgraduate as well as undergraduate students. Uh, more specifically, um, I train uh, registrars in psychiatry because I've had a long-standing interest in anxiety disorders. I run an anxiety disorders clinic um, for uh, registrars or residents, and they're doctors who specializing in psychiatry. But I also uh, do more didactic teaching to um, undergraduate students, um, particularly medical students, um, in their third and fourth years. Thank you very much. I was very interested to see that you, you've done quite a bit of work on post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was just wondering, you know, if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. You know, what, what interested you in that, that aspect in the first place? And, and have you had any interesting findings that you could share with us? I've had a long-standing interest in post-traumatic stress disorder. And my interest um, came about um, during my uh, registrar training. During my registrar training, I was expected to undertake a research project. Um, I became particularly interested in um, obsessive compulsive disorder over that time because my supervisor mentor at the time uh, was a world-renowned um, expert in anxiety disorders. I soon realized that um, obsessive compulsive disorder and hoarding, uh, and hoarding is uh, one of the features of obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's also now characterized as a standalone uh, mental condition, um, that um, this disorder overlaps with other anxiety disorders like panic disorder and social anxiety disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. And what I saw in patients that I was involved in recruiting for my research uh, projects at the time uh, was that they had very high rates of exposure to trauma and I became particularly interested in uh, assessing the impact of trauma um, on those research participants but also in patients that I was seeing in the clinical setting. And I um, then decided at the time, together with my supervisor, that uh, because I was interested in trauma and I was in interested in the impact of trauma on youth um, 
in uh, my geographic region. Uh, South Africa, as you may know, has very high rates of um, exposure to um, interpersonal violence, in particular physical and uh, sexual violence. Um, and so together with my supervisor, I discussed the possibility of setting up a research uh, clinic uh, for youth. So um, a few decades back in uh, 1999, I established a small research clinic and it was um, called the Batutuzele Youth Stress Clinic. Batutuzele is a Kosa word, so Kosa is one of the African um, languages. Um, in this part of South Africa, in the Western Cape uh, province. Um, and it means comfort to them. So this was a clinic to um, recruit and assess youth exposed to um, violent trauma in particular, um, and to assess them for um, emotional, behavioral, academic difficulties, and then refer them um, for appropriate care. As part of that research, we conducted very careful diagnostic assessments, um, cognitive assessments, because we know that trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder have an impact on the cognitive abilities of uh, youth as well as adults. We also um, conducted uh, brain imaging um, studies um, of those adolescents to try and um, delineate the impact of trauma on the brain. That clinic has continued um, and um, it is one of the activities that I am um, most proud of. Um, it's a clinic that continues to this day. And in fact, um, since we uh, recommenced the clinic after a hiatus during um, COVID and during lockdown in South Africa, we've seen um, the uptake um, Increase quite and it's been quite an incremental um, growth of um, uh, youth that have um, sought um, to access our clinic, and we're particularly encouraged about that. And you know that clinic has also um, allowed us to nest many other research projects within it. Thank you. It's it's fascinating to hear about something that's obviously been so or and continues to be so so impactful. So I have another question, which is probably a bit trickier for the field of psychiatry than for other branches of medicine. So in my <clears throat> dream scenario, I am given the money to set up a museum of medicine and I will collect one object that represents each specialty to put in this imaginary museum what would be the one object for psychiatry, would you say? Um, I think it would be a brain specimen, uh, but I think a brain specimen together with um, a human form, perhaps a human form with um, kind of hands that um, encompass the brain. And I think that would represent kind of both the science and the art that is required in managing mental illness, um, as well as represent the um, importance of the doctor-patient interaction um, and the qualities of empathy and listening um, that are um, integral, they're at the core 
they're in fact the cornerstone of uh, treating uh, a person with mental illness. Yeah, it, I, I did. Th- and that's fantastic. Thank you. But yes, I did think before I asked it that it's a lot easier of a question for a cardiologist, for example, to answer. But yours wasn't uh, the most disgusting because I won't get into what the gastroenterologist wanted a jar of in this exhibition. So, um, so yeah, no, it, it's easier for some than for others, certainly. So you've talked about the past and the changes that you've seen. I'm interested to know what you think the changes will be in the future. So where do you see psychiatry going and changing in 10, 20 or 30 years time? Um, well, I think that um, there is going to be far more um, integration of treatment. I think we're going to be uh, in a better place in terms of understanding how to integrate different treatment modalities. Um, and I am specifically referring to integrating uh, treatments, particularly novel treatments, with psychotherapeutic approaches, because even though we do implement um, integration in our practice. Um, we do it in a somewhat haphazard way, and it is not yet um, on the back of very robust evidence. So I think that we will be in a place where we will um, have the tools um, to integrate those treatments in a more effective uh, way so that, um, you know, it has more um, substantial benefits for the patients that we manage. Um, what I also see is there being far more of an integration uh, of uh, the management of mental health within general health services, because we need to do that for many reasons. We need to um, we need to move a long way towards a decreasing stigma and discrimination of the mentally ill. And we also need to um, ensure that we um, can consolidate the scarce resources that we have available. Um, it is also um, far better to um, have the um, integration within the health system of mental health and other uh, medical services, uh, because I think it allows for um, greater interdisciplinary collaboration um, and more of a team approach to managing uh, the mentally ill. Um, and, you know, collaborative care is um, at the heart of what um, medicine is about. Um, I also see um, from um, a technology perspective, um, being um, in a place where machine learning will be uh, used more routinely um, to um, predict um, the course of uh, individuals who may be presenting with early mental illness to uh, assist with diagnosis, um, to assist with um, prognostication. Uh, but at the same time, um, I see that there will always be a place for a psychiatrist, um, even um, with the you know, development of kind of robotics and uh, bioinformatics and um, machine learning and computational thinking, uh, there will always be a need for a psychiatrist because 
Um, it is about humanely treating individuals. And I, as I've said, um, empathic listening is at the core. Um, and, you know, we may have diagnostic systems, um, but um, it is not a cookie cutter uh, evaluation that um, one does as a psychiatrist. Um, it does require clinical judgment. Uh, it does require more holistic understanding of the person um, who is sitting in front of you. No, absolutely. I, I completely agree. There's some things that, that a robot can't do and it can't be a human, essentially, um, and have those kind of human qualities. So we're, we're coming towards the end now, but we're talking in July 2022. So before we finish up, we should probably touch on the thing that's dominated all of our lives for the last couple of years, which is the coronavirus pandemic. So I'm just curious, how did the pandemic impact on, on your work and, and on the profession of psychiatry more generally? So in South Africa, we had to uh, pivot very quickly, as did many um, clinicians and psychiatrists in particular around the world, to um, managing uh, patients um, in a different way, um, using um, telemedicine um, to reach out to patients, to conduct therapy sessions, we had to um, downscale our inpatient units um, in order to admit um, patients with COVID rather than patients with mental illness. Um, it's, it's been a very challenging time uh, because of limited bed capacity in our hospitals um, to manage the mentally ill who um, also have COVID. Um, it's very difficult in many instances to isolate um, patients um, because they are so behaviorally disturbed <laughs> to contain them um, and to, uh, to nurse them in isolation. On the research front, uh, many of our research projects were put on hold, um, as I think was the status quo uh, for many universities around the world. Um, but when we were able to resume our research activities, um, we um, had planned very carefully with um, protocols in place, uh, safety protocols um, to protect both our staff as well as our research participants. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that um, here in uh, July 2022, we are uh, pretty much back on track with our research projects. Um, from the perspective of teaching and training, well, we had to pivot to um, online teaching and training. What I did <clears throat> realize uh, quite early on was the negative impact that it had, particularly on our new trainees, our new um, psychiatry registrars, who felt very isolated, who in uh, fact had not met their fellow registrars in person, had only spoken to them on a Zoom call, on a Teams call, or via WhatsApp, they were feeling very isolated and, in fact, not coping very well. Um, and so we decided quite early on, um, as soon as it was safe to do so, that we would initiate small group teaching um, to allow for that social contact and social uh, interaction. And, you know, the feedback that we've had from our trainees has been very positive. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fascinating. Thank you.
Our case study today explores the little-known Henry Newcomb, author of a book titled The Private Asylum, How I Got In and Out, an autobiography, which was published in 1889. Fear of false imprisonment was a growing concern in 18th century Britain. Private madhouses, where the inmates were paying customers, were particularly susceptible because there was little oversight of their practices. Although legislation to regulate asylums was introduced in 1774, its powers were limited and flagrant abuses of the system continued. As the number of asylums increased dramatically over the course of the 19th century, they were increasingly used to house individuals who were not necessarily a threat to themselves or others, but rather viewed as a social inconvenience. This was of particular concern to wealthy individuals, where any actions which didn't comply with social norms could be seen as damaging to the reputation of entire families. Public fear that incarceration could be used by families to obtain the patient's estate or to free up a spouse to remarry was also widespread and was a subject depicted in popular culture, including the work of Daniel Defoe. Growing concerns about this misuse of asylums led to the establishment of a select committee to investigate the issue in 1815. While subsequent legislation expanded the responsibilities of magistrates, an effective nationwide system of regulation was not introduced until 1845. In large part, this new legislation was the result of extensive public campaigns. Particularly prominent in this was a group which included ex-inmates who had formed a body called the Alleged Lunatic Society in the 1840s. But the problem didn't entirely end there. The Reverend Henry Newcomb was on holiday in Scotland in 1859, when his wife and sister became concerned that he seemed unwell. Newcomb decided to visit a doctor to relieve their doubts. He was then detained in a private asylum in Edinburgh for nine months. This detention cost Newcomb approximately £500. Written 30 years later, Newcomb's autobiography details his initial medical assessments and treatment. One physician believed Newcomb's invention of a quote, stove which will heat the room by the consumption of a newspaper in it was proof that he had lapsed into an imbecile state. This invention was no fantasy, however, and Newcomb had already patented it six weeks before being detained. He also later received an honourable mention for his invention at the Smoke Exhibition in South Kensington in 1882. The Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh's edition of Newcomb's work includes a letter he wrote which is addressed to the president of our college. In it, Newcomb states that, quote, with many of your profession, their hearts are better than their heads. He asks for the president's assistance, hoping to get a formal review of his case and certification of his sanity to demonstrate to his family, friends and parishioners his fitness to remain outside the walls of the asylum and continue his work. Newcomb notes he remains unsure as to why he was detained, but hopes, quote, if anyone should find himself through the fears of an affectionate wife inside a private asylum, he will at least learn from my experiences what not to do. Thank you for listening to this Case Notes podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the work we do, you can visit our website at rcpe.ac.uk forward slash heritage. You can also find us on Twitter at RCPE Heritage, and we have a Just Giving page, RCPE Heritage, linked to on our website if you'd like to support our work and help to fund future podcasts. Thank you.